So just to give us a little bit of background, because we're jumping right into Acts chapter 4, and as many of you guys may know, Acts is a book that has a lot of storytelling, there's a lot of events that kind of lead into one another, and so starting off with Acts 4, we see an instance where Peter is standing up for the Christians, and he's speaking to uh, the Jewish officials at the time. But this isn't the first time we see Peter actually speak up within the book of Acts. Right in Acts chapter 2, we see that Peter gives the first sermon in the age of the new church at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 3, after the lame beggar was healed, we also see that Peter speaks uh, up. He explains what's going on with the healing of the lame beggar. And now, being in Acts chapter 4, we see that the Jewish officials aren't too happy that Peter is starting to do these miracles, and so they start questioning him, and again, Peter speaks up. And so this is the third time that Peter is speaking up on behalf of the Christians, and he just seems remarkable, right? He seems so eloquent with his words. He seems to know exactly what to say and just how to stump the people that are questioning him. And so often we see these big figures within Scripture, right? We think, man, I really wish I could be that one guy or that one girl. Sometimes we see figures like King David, Somebody so loyal, so capable, a leader-like figure. Or maybe we even see people like Esther. Somebody who is so bold to be able to speak up against the Persian king on behalf of God's people. Or maybe when we're reading Acts here and we see the case of Peter speaking up on behalf of the Christians, that we think, man, I really want to be like Peter. I really want to speak like him, be bold like him. To stand up for what's right. So often we see these wonderful examples of people in Scripture and the faithful works that they did, and of course, these are things to be commended. We want to be like these people, but in some sense, we already are. In some sense, we're already like Peter more than we might realize, and I think there's three characteristics in particular that we share in common with them. By ourselves, and just like Peter, we are ungodly, unequipped, and unfaithful. By ourselves, and just like Peter, we are ungodly, unequipped, and unfaithful. Kind of a sad way to have to compare ourselves to Peter, but let's see, let's see and understand a little bit more of uh, what we mean by Peter being ungodly. And of course, when we're saying that Peter is somebody who's ungodly, of course we don't mean to say as though he's just completely living a life without Christ or without God, um, even before Jesus called him into ministry. Right? Peter and John, they were Jewish fishermen that Jesus had called to be his disciples. They probably, just like a lot of the other people at the time, they went to the temple, they worshipped, they celebrated feasts, and they did their Jewish different traditions. And of course, when we say that Peter is ungodly, we don't mean to say that he's somehow had some sort of moral failure or something like Judas Iscariot, right, who plotted the death of Jesus. And so what do we really mean by ungodly here? Well, ungodly usually means to be unlike God or to be against God. But in a more general sense, we can also talk about ungodliness as having no direction in life and no eternal purpose. Even we as Christians can be ungodly in this sense when we believe in God, 
but then we continue to live our lives as though God doesn't exist. Sometimes life feels like we're lost or we have no sense of direction. And I definitely feel that. Uh, people that know me well know that I am extremely directionally challenged. <laughs> uh, so often I'm like the kind of person who, if I ever need to navigate somewhere new, I need my iPhone. Right? I'm sure many of you guys maybe feel this as well. You know, you're, uh, you're traveling to a new place and you're like, okay, I'll just put in the address onto my phone and then I'll just trust it. Wherever it takes me, I will follow. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you know uh, especially in the olden days, back before we had 5G and 4G LTE, there were the days that we had 3G. Ooh, you know, so spooky. 3G. It was so unreliable, such a terrible network. It just never felt like you could actually go anywhere. And, uh, you know, phones were definitely not what they were like nowadays. So I remember back when I was in high school, this was probably around 2013, 2014 or so, um, I remember I was driving home from hanging out with a friend. Uh, I was coming back from their house, but I forgot to charge my phone that night. And so, uh, as I was driving on my way home, between having limited data, having 3G, or sometimes worse connections, especially like when you're on the roads, having my phone die actually partway through my drive, and just my general lostness when it comes to you know, panicking whenever these situations happen. I was just lost, stranded, just driving down the highway and had no idea which exit to take. I had to end up pulling over to a nearby exit and I found a store uh, where I was thankfully able to just plug in a wall charger, uh, be able to charge my phone. And since then I've always brought a charger with me that can, you know, uh, actually charge while I'm in the car because you know, I don't want that kind of case to happen ever again. <laughs> And so without my GPS, you know, I had nothing to rely on for a sense of direction except for myself. It's in moments like these where I wish I was more like my dad. My dad was always the kind of person who could just tell me the directions. He'd be like, oh yeah, just take you know, this highway, take it over to here. And you know, he could figure out a whole entire uh, course of directions for me to take uh, without even having to open up a single map. It's times like these, I wish my dad was just sitting right next to me in the car, uh, just telling me which way to go. Without a sense of direction and purpose in life, we often will fall prey to temptations. We adopt sinful patterns in our lives without remorse. When we grow distant from God, it's kind of like we're trying to navigate these roads and uh, they're getting darker and darker and the lights that are around us are getting dimmer and dimmer. Sometimes we ask questions like, God, what is your plan for my life? Or God, where do you want me to go? Have any of you guys ever felt out of touch with God? Do you ever find yourself asking God for direction in your life? You know, God might not write out what your career path is in disguise or give you some sort of audible voice to tell you which way you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do today or tomorrow. But I can tell you this, that God has given a family for you in the church that he's established, filled with friends, brothers, sisters, pastors, and various mentors to help you grow on a path of godliness. Growing in godliness is more than this one-on-one -on -one, uh, prayer time that we spend with God, just asking him to make big life decisions for us. Rather, Growing in godliness is about God taking those who are ungodly and giving them a holy sense of purpose 
alongside others within his church. For Peter, all that he knew before Jesus came along was just how to fish and worship God. But once Jesus came into his life and called him to follow him, he paved out a new path for Peter to follow, a path that would test Peter's faith, give him various challenges in what it means to actually follow Jesus. Peter found himself uh, repurposed as one of these 12 apostles in Jesus' new church, amongst thousands of other followers, and as one of the major spokespersons for them. And yet even for Peter, having such a clear role within what he's supposed to do in life, what he's supposed to do in the church, Peter could never stand on his own. And one of the ways we see just how much Jesus, uh, how much Peter really needed Jesus is how utterly unequipped he was. So this goes to our second point about the unequipped. When we see in verse 13, uh, moving a little bit further along in the passage, we see uh, a little bit more about who Peter and John are. Uh, verse 13 reads, Now when they, were, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so these Jewish officials, they rightly recognize that uh, Peter and John are these uneducated, very common men. Right? They're just fishermen, after all. And they're living in a world filled with philosophers, uh, wonderful spokespeople, politicians, Jewish officials. Uh, during these times, when, within the Roman culture, very few Romans actually got much of an education. Right? Usually if you were poor, you would not get an education at all whatsoever. Peter and John, they weren't even Roman citizens, and so they likely had no formal education whatsoever as well. Some Romans, however, those who were a little bit wealthier off, they would learn things like reading or writing or math. Uh, sometimes at the age of 10 to 12, they would start to learn about poetry. And at the ages of 14 to 15, they would start to learn how to actually become speakers. They would be trained in public speaking, law, politics. And so when we're actually comparing Peter and John, these two fishermen from the middle of nowhere, to these Jewish governing officials who are ranked among these top philosophers and spokespeople, it seems like they're just a bunch of elementary schoolers trying to school people who are in college. This is something that I've even felt before, and I'm sure many of us have felt. Um, this feeling of being surrounded by other people who are so talented and so much more knowledgeable, uh, more equipped than we are. Uh, when I was thinking about entering into seminary school, there were a lot of different considerations that I was making around this time. I felt like I had a moderate amount of Bible knowledge. Um, I felt like I had grown a lot uh, having been uh, raised up in a Christian church and having learned a lot about the Bible. I read my Bible very often. I even started reading some different theological books at the time. Uh, one of the funniest birthday gifts, I think, was also my 20th birthday gift from my parents, which was systematic theology. <laughs> <laughs> I also served a, a number of years in my college fellowship, Chinese Christian Fellowship at Rutgers. Uh, I served there as a president, as a small group coordinator. I had um, even interned at my uh, church's uh, summer internship program for youth ministry, and I'd been a youth counselor for already a number of years too. But so often I found myself just feeling completely unequipped. 
There was this one moment uh, during my internship at my home church where my pastor had asked me to prepare this little five to ten minute sort of mini message, kind of like a devotional, uh, just to be able to share about God's word and help uh, bring it to other people's lives. And it was only just going to be a room with my pastor and myself. He's just going to hear me speak, and uh, he wanted to just give me some feedback, some encouragements. And so I prepared for this little five to ten minute talk. I had all my notes ready, and as I was getting ready to actually share it with him, uh, there were two moments within that five to ten minutes where I just had to completely stop. And I, I told my pastor, Pastor James, I don't know where I'm going with this right now. I just felt so lost. I felt like I was fumbling over my words. And even to this day, I've recognized that. I still have a fear of public speaking, which is kind of something crazy thinking about going into ministry. And I remember a moment when my pastor had encouraged me and he said, no, like, I think what you had was some really good substance and uh, it was really meaningful and impactful. But as he was sharing these different feedbacks to me, I, I just found myself trying to hide in my tears and uh, just keeping my head down, hoping that he wouldn't see that I was actually crying. It was at that moment that I had actually originally thought to myself, I would never want to enter ministry. But as time went along and as different experiences came along during my time in college, and as I was praying and reflecting and having more conversations with pastors and my parents, I realized that seminary was actually a potential opportunity coming right out of college. But this feeling of being unequipped also re-entered into my life when I entered my first seminary classes. Right? I felt like I was the person who already had a decent amount of Bible knowledge and I had already read some different books, but you know, once I was in one of these classes, I just realized that so many of these people had been uh, doing much deeper study than what I was doing. They'd been studying theology for years and years, some of them for even longer than I've been alive. These people had already studied things like philosophy, church history, and they'd already read multiple volumes of systematic theology. So everyone seemed to be so capable and so passionate about their ministries, and I just started experiencing that sort of imposter syndrome, right? Uh, sort of wondering, am I really in the right place? Like, is this really my calling? Is this really where God's been leading me? And I'm sure many of us in this room have also felt that before. You know, whether it's in our workplaces or in our school classes, you know, you're always sizing yourself up with the other people in the room, thinking about, you know, am I actually more talented than this person? Am I smart enough to keep up with the rest of these classes? Can I make it through? Am I just a fraud? Do I really belong here? Why can't I be like that person? You can already achieve so much more than me. I must be in the wrong place, or I must be unqualified for this position. It was during these moments when I was wrestling with my calling that I always go back to what one pastor had shared with me before I started attending my seminary classes. And he gave me this one bit of advice. Never lose sight of your calling. Never lose sight of your calling. And I think that bit of advice actually meant so much more to me than just my calling for ministry. And I think it's also a calling that you and I both share as well. And it's a calling for us to be God's children. 
It's a calling for us to be Christians. God has called his people and has equipped us with his Holy Spirit. This is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 4. We see Peter being empowered by the Holy Spirit, and through that, he's able to speak. He's able to be equipped. Equipping isn't about your individual ability or your individual talents, but rather equipping is about gifts. Gifts from the Holy Spirit to give you strength and boldness to step up to the occasion. In some cases, it comes as uh, those like what we see in Acts chapter 4 with Peter being able to stand up so boldly for the gospel. When Peter is questioned by these Jewish officials, um, he's able to call them out for their ignorance. And at other times, and I think more commonly for what we experience in a day-to-day sort of way, the Holy Spirit empowers us to be strengthened. He gives us a greater capacity to be patient and to be loving. Looking back at Acts chapter 4, even though Jesus has already ascended into heaven, and uh, in Acts chapter 1, God has already reassured Peter that his presence is there with him through the Holy Spirit that enables him to speak at that time. Yeah, at the same time, at Peter's very core, there's something more deep that needs to be fixed than just his equipping. Uh, There is something there that is left unsettled. There is Peter's tendency to be unfaithful. This goes to our third point about unfaithfulness. I'm sure many of us remember instances of Peter's unfaithfulness, especially of the three times that he denied Jesus uh, before the rooster crowed. This is in Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John chapter 18. It's written in each of the gospel accounts, it seems like something of such a key account because it really shows who Peter really is at his core. He's somebody who's not actually faithful by himself. And so Peter, knowing his own unfaithfulness, as he's arguing against these Jewish officials, he doesn't go back to himself. As we see in the passage, who does Peter actually turn to? In verse 10, we see that he calls upon the one that the Jewish officials had crucified. Similar to Acts chapter 2, verses 23, during his first sermon, he refers to the one whom the crowd crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Or in Acts chapter 3, verses 15, as he's addressing the crowd that sees this lame beggar being healed, he tells them that they have killed the author of life himself, whom God raised from the dead. And so why does Peter always go back to reminding the crowds that they've crucified Jesus? Well, it's because it's in the very power of Jesus that the lame man was able to be healed. And so as Peter is bringing up this instance to the Jewish officials, he's also asking this question to them. Whose side are you really on? Are you with the ones who murdered Jesus? Or are you with the ones who actually promote the healing of this man? Are you with the ones that Jesus is still working through to this very day? We see in verse 11 that Peter also makes this analogy that the officials are like builders 
And Jesus is like this perfect cornerstone. And so understanding how buildings are being made probably helps us a little bit with this analogy that he's uh, making. Uh, cornerstones within this day were specific blocks that needed to be uh, put down first, and they needed to be perfectly square so that the rest of the blocks would be in line. If the cornerstone is slightly uh, uh, off in its angles, the rest of the building is going to just completely diverge to uh, different degrees, and you're not going to end up with a square building. The cornerstone needs to be the first stone put in place, and it needs to be perfectly square, or else all the other buildings won't be in line with the rest of the building. The Jewish officials were supposed to be the ones who actually recognized that Jesus was that perfect cornerstone. After all, they were the ones who were the most educated. They were supposedly the ones who had known the scriptures the best. They were supposed to be the ones who were most in touch with the Jewish community. Yet they were the very ones who had ordered Jesus' death through crucifixion. They were the most devoted. They were the most intelligent. Yet they charged him with blasphemy. Jesus is our perfect cornerstone because salvation belongs solely to him and because he is truly faithful. Jesus says this about himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 10, verses 11, he, uh, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And later he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own me. In Philippians 2, 10, we see that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the Jesus is the perfect cornerstone for us to our, align ourselves with because he alone is faithful and he is worth putting our faith in. In conclusion, we see in uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 22, how the Jewish leaders actually react to the fact of uh, Jesus being represented. What do they say? They say, Peter and John, don't speak about Jesus ever again. Don't use his name. But Peter and John replied, we can't help it. You know, this is just some joy that is overflowing from us. This is the fact of the matter. The reason why the man was healed was because of Jesus. They can't just stop speaking about Jesus. He's the reason why things like this, these miracles and acts are happening. The Jewish leaders have no choice. They decide, okay, we just have to give in to your request because the whole crowd, even Christians and non-Christians alike, everybody is rejoicing that God is doing wonders at this moment. So they let them go. We see in Acts chapter 4 that God is able to use people like Peter and John to ordinary, completely uneducated people in order to perform miracles in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like that ironic Windows message that you sometimes see, that message that says, task failed successfully. It's like Peter, you know, even in his ungodliness, his unequippedness, and his unfaithfulness, somehow God is able to use this failure of a person in order to bring success. To those of us here who maybe feel ungodly, we who have no direction in life, 
or no eternal purpose. God the Father reveals himself to us through himself as the only God who is worthy of worship. And to those who maybe feel unequipped, we who are unable to do it on our own, God gives to us his Holy Spirit to stand firm in the midst of temptation. And to those of us who feel unfaithful, we who are afraid and we turn away from God, God gave to us Jesus Christ, the one who was truly faithful, the one who is truly worth putting our hope and trust in. Even to this day, Jesus is watching over us faithfully and intercedes for us so preciously. God knows our very needs and he supplies them with himself. He gives to us the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 